Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast as part of our end-of-the-year roundup, where we talk to some of our favorite experts about what's going to happen next year. Uh, I am uh, delighted to say that we've got with us our friend Barb McQuaid. You know her from MSNBC. You know her from her Sisters-in-Law podcast. You know her from teaching law at the University of Michigan Law School. How are you today, Barb? Doing great, David. Thanks for having me. Well, it's pleasure pleasure to talk to you always. And the idea is we're going to look ahead to next year. And, you know, we've got so many cases of importance um looming ahead of us uh uh i'm going to start by rattling off a few of the trump cases and i what i'd like you to help our listeners with is to sort of set their expectations for what might actually get done next year or what won't get done next year um in each one of those um cases so let me let me start with um well, let me start with the one that's furthest along, which is the Trump-New York fraud trial, uh, where we've been, they've, I guess both sides, have they rested? Have they both presented their case? You know, they're, they're going to resume, they're going to do closing arguments in January, and then the judge will render a decision. So they took a break for the holidays. So we, a decision might happen in January? I think so. Um you I mean, the judge is going to have to make findings of facts and conclusions of law, but uh, I don't know how long he'll sit on it. But all that's left is summation by both sides. They've both sides have rested, um, so that all that's left is you know closing arguments, which will take. But a day but or two. in terms of that case, the decision, the the the, the verdict was already reached that um, uh, fraud had occurred, right? So this was about setting level of penalties. Mostly, yes. So the judge found um, that the, the defendants were liable for count one, which is a consumer uh, type of account. So it, it did find fraud, but it did not find intent to defraud. Uh, it's it's sufficient that you show you know, just the numbers, that the numbers were so out of whack that they were fraudulent. So the remaining counts are still in issue, and those do require a finding of an intent to defraud, not just, you know, 
reasonable minds disagree about the value of this property or honest mistake, but a real intent to uh, mislead people to obtain a thing of value. That's an issue. And then, as you said, the amount. The state is asking for $250 million in disgorgement of um, you know, profits that were unearned. Um, okay. Uh, but that's um, a civil case, right? That's a, and, and it's and it's a, it's a state case which, once a, a decision is reached, it can't be reversed by a sitting president, for example. Absolutely right. It, you know, I'm sure Donald Trump will appeal. It'll still go to a court of appeals before it gets resolved. But ultimately, one of the other things at stake there are his certificates for doing business in the state of New York. So it could see the end of Trump Tower and some of his other businesses in New York. Um, yeah, those that have not already sort of torn the Trump name off of them, which there was a flurry of that recently. All right. So the next one up, as far as I know, um, would be the Tanya Chutkin case, the Jack Smith case regarding January 6th, where there there seemed to be an intent on the part of the judge and on the part of um, the Department of Justice to have this trial begin on or about March 4th. The other thing that uh, seems relevant in that regard, and I think there was a little action further on this today, is that. uh, the special prosecutor has asked the Supreme Court to make a decision on the issue of presidential immunity, if I've got it right, um, and to do so soon. And I think there was a January 4th deadline for that. How does that, how is that likely to play out? How is that likely to affect the date? What would we expect in terms of when this takes place and when it might be resolved? Yeah, I think this one is the most important of the whole batch. As you said, Jack Smith charged this in a very targeted way, charging only Donald Trump. Although he named six unindicted co-conspirators, he didn't include them in the case because that would certainly slow things down with all of their emotions and then the length of the trial and all of those things. So it's just Donald Trump charging that case with four counts. Um, Donald Trump filed a motion to dismiss the case based on presidential immunity, that you can't charge me with crimes while I'm president. Um, and, and all of these things I did were within the scope of my duties as president, and therefore this case should be dismissed. Although Judge Tanya Chutkin, the trial judge, denied that motion and said, nope, what you did was outside the scope of the presidential powers. You were acting as a candidate, not as the president. Donald Trump appealed that to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And what Judge Chutkin said is that um, the order, uh, the case must be stayed, paused while the case is on appeal. And as she reasoned, that immunity is designed to relieve the person from all of the burdens of litigation. And that includes things like motion practice and discovery and other things. And so instead of taking care of all of those things between now and March 4th, uh, there's a pause on all of that. They were even sending out juror questionnaires so that they could be ready to have a, a more streamlined process for jury selection so that the case could stay on track for March 4th. Because of that stay, you know, every day we lose, I think, risks that March 4th trial date. So, um, but what Jack Smith did is ask to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, go straight to the Supreme Court. And although that's a rare step, it's not unheard of. In the past hundred years, it's been done something like 45 times. And in the past five years, it's been done 25 times. 
uh, usually involving presidential power. Um, so it's not far-fetched to think that the Supreme Court might take this up. And one of the arguments is the Supreme Court's going to take this case anyway, right? Because whoever loses in the D.C. Circuit is going to appeal to the Supreme Court. So why waste everybody's time at the appellate, you know, intermediate appellate level? Let's go straight to the Supreme Court, get an answer, and we can get back to work with this trial. And on the merits, David, I think it's a loser. I think the government's going to prevail. So the question is simply how long this plays out. And interestingly, even though this is Donald Trump's own motion and he says, this case should be dismissed, it's over because I'm immune. He says, oh, but let's not decide it too quickly. (laughs) He said to the Supreme Court, this should be uh, decided with all due deliberation in its normal course. And therefore he opposes this expedited appeal. But we'll, you know, we'll get a decision on that, I think, fairly quickly. And um, one promising sign, I think, was that the court asked for expedited briefing on it. Donald Trump's brief was filed yesterday. And so that does suggest that they are at least considering taking it on an expedited basis. So if they, you you said they may make a decision quickly. You don't expect to wait till June for a decision on this. Yeah, I don't think so. But, you know, again, they may say, uh, go ahead, Court of Appeals. In the meantime, since Jack Smith filed this motion in the Supreme Court, the D.C. Circuit kind of got the memo and issued their own expedited briefing schedule. And so they have signaled to the world that they intend to decide this case quickly. And so maybe that means the Supreme Court should hold off and handle things in due course. But I don't think they'll wait till June. I just think that this is the kind of case where resolution matters. Because remember, it's not just the defendant who has a right to a speedy trial, but so does the public. And, you know, this isn't just about beating the election so that uh, Trump can be, you know, we can avoid having a Trump uh, stop everything in this case. But there's also a public interest in a speedy trial so that memories are fresh, documents are available, jurors find the memories of witnesses credible. So there are important reasons to move this case along promptly. Is it reasonable to say that even if the trial doesn't start on March 4th, you would expect it to start at some point in the spring or in the summer and be resolved before the election? Or is that not reasonable? No, I think it is reasonable. I think even if it doesn't start till June, it's still reasonable. Now, once the Supreme Court decides, that just means the the stay gets lifted and then they still have to do all those things that we're otherwise going to do. So once the stay gets lifted, there's probably still a little bit of time there while they resolve the motions and select the jury and all of that. But I don't see this trial going more than, say, six or eight weeks. You know, it alleges five kind of different schemes, you know, weaponizing the Justice Department and false electors and pressuring state legislators, et cetera. If each of those schemes takes a week to try, that's five weeks. Uh, The defense case maybe is another two weeks, that's seven weeks. And then you've got closing argument and deliberation. So, you know, eight weeks seems like the right amount of time. So if you start in June or July, you can be done in two months done by September. Done by September, sometime before the election. Of course, no matter what happens, it gets appealed, but there is an impact to a verdict. Oh, I think so. And you can't, you know, you can't undo that. You don't, um, I mean, if it's reversed on appeal, of course, then he may get a new trial or maybe the case goes away in some way. But I think it, it, it can be really important, one, to provide information to the public about uh, the consequences and the seriousness of what he did on January 6th. You know, there are those who still say it's a witch hunt and a hoax. If you get a jury, a unanimous jury of 12 strangers to come in and render a guilty verdict, I think that really changes uh, the way, you know, history and the public think about uh, about this issue. Um, it also prohibits a 
second administration Trump presidency from, um, uh, you know, um, ending the case before there is a trial. They could still dismiss it, I suppose, if it's on appeal, uh, you know, throw out the case, but um, that trial verdict will still have, you know, been the, spoken by a jury. And I think he can't erase history in that way. Right. And although we don't know anything um, uh, for sure, there are polls that suggest that something like 25% of Republicans say they would not vote for Trump if he were actually convicted of a felony. So it could have some consequence for the election itself. Now, there's a there's a myriad uh, of cases to deal with here, but the next one, the one that seemed like it was next in line, was Fannie Willis and Georgia. Um, but now, you know, the more, you know, stages and steps there are to that, it looks to me like, um, and I, by the way, get all my information listening to you, but it looks to me like, you know, this is a case that's in the fall or maybe after the election. Is that true? Yeah, it seems, you know, there's no trial date set yet, and it's kind of sprawling. It, 19 defendants were charged. I think we're down now to 15 after some guilty pleas, but that's still kind of a monster of a case. I expect we'll still see some guilty pleas maybe later on down the road so that it gets down to a manageable number. But it's also in competition with some of these other trials uh, on the docket. Um, you know, I think uh, there's the, in addition, the Alvin Bragg case that's out there that's set for March. That might go then. As we discussed, there's the um, federal election interference case that's got to go, plus the Mar-a-Lago case, which is currently set, set for May. I don't know whether that'll go or not. So maybe. Fonnie Willis is pushing for an August trial date. That might seem a little ambitious, especially because she says, she thinks it'll go five months and she could see it spilling into 2025. If it's going to go that long, I could see the judge saying, boy, we don't want it going on while there is an election going on. I think it might be possible to wait and see whether Trump's the nominee. And then if he's not, maybe it's easier to have the case go on, you know, and start in August. If he is the nominee, you know, there's always this concern that a criminal prosecution could interfere with a fair election. And so if you get too close to the election, there is some tendency to want to delay it. But of course, if you delay it and Donald Trump is elected president, there's at least an argument that a sitting president not only cannot be charged while he's sitting, but cannot go to trial while he's sitting, which means that that would kick the trial into January of 2029 and talk about, you know, stale evidence and memories fading. That would really harm, I think, the public's interest in a speedy trial. So the judge has to take that into consideration as well. Although that clearly is, I mean, the Trump teams working on these cases, job one is to delay, right? Oh, yeah. If, you know, if you can get everything pushed back past the election, um, he could potentially dismiss the federal cases. And even the state cases could, you know, have to wait until January of 2029. And then who knows what happens, right? Delay is, you know, there's the uncertainty of delays. Good things can happen between now and then. You know, Fannie Willis is out of office and her successor isn't interested in pursuing the case. I mean, all kinds of things can happen, you know, to unravel these cases. So just keep kicking the can down the road and, uh, you know, eventually um, maybe they go away. Now that judge in that case, although he's a, uh, I think he's a Trump appointee, seems to be handling this thing in, in, a, in a rather responsible, even-handed manner. That cannot be said for uh, Judge Eileen Cannon, who is handling the Mar-a-Lago case. Now, personally, 
you know, as you know, I'm a national security guy. The idea that we wouldn't resolve the issue of whether the president abused national secrets, stole them, handed them off to other people, um, did so repeatedly um, before the election strikes me as grotesquely irresponsible. But having said that, I don't think anybody has any expectation that she's going to let that trial go before the election because she seems to have her thumb on the scale. Is that unfair? No, I don't think it is. You know, I think she invited skepticism about her fairness when she entered some really goofy rulings last year when the Mar-a-Lago search began. You know, she allowed him to file a civil action to challenge that search really before it was ripe. Ordinarily, searches are not challenged until um, there's a indictment filed, and that's when you have standing to file a motion to suppress in the criminal case. By giving him that benefit, and she even said in her opinion that, you know, presidents are are different, um, suggested that she viewed him as the president as being above the law. Um, You know, it was immediately struck down by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals appropriately. And uh, I think that has drawn this skepticism that perhaps because she was appointed by Donald Trump, that she um, is in the bag for him. I don't know whether she is or not, but I think the, the the skepticism is fair based on that really um, out of bounds ruling that she made. Then the other thing that she has done that I think has caused some skepticism is, you know, Jack Smith has been working hard in this case to keep things moving along, including litigation under the Classified Information Procedures Act, which helps the parties figure out what the rules are going to be at trial in dealing with classified information to make sure it's appropriately safeguarded. And uh, you know, she said. Um, I don't even want to deal with that until March. You know, see you then. Uh, and the fact that she doesn't want to be proactive and keep things moving does suggest that that March trial date, or I'm sorry, May trial date, is uh, in some jeopardy because she's not really allowing enough time after this is resolved in March to get things ready for May. So it does seem like uh, I'm a little skeptical of whether she is working hard to keep that trial date. Um, I don't know if that she's in the bag for Trump so much as she is. Um, reluctant to try this case. Uh, you know, she doesn't want to be the first one to preside over a, a Trump uh, conviction. That's just my speculation. But if she kind of slow walks it, and lets everybody go first, then maybe by the time her case comes to trial, it's not such a big deal. But I agree with you. It's such an important case that, you know, the idea that uh, there are these um, highly sensitive documents that are outside the government's control. And, you know, there's this latest report about this um, a binder full of very sensitive documents relating to Russia. Nobody knows where it is. Uh, it's incredibly dangerous to our national security. It also makes it harder for our allies to trust us that we will safeguard their secrets. And we need them to share their secrets with us. It also makes informants less likely to share information if they think we're just going to throw this stuff around recklessly. So it really harms our national security in a lot of ways. And um, I don't see any reason that this case should not be resolved promptly. It's actually a short trial. I think you can try this case in a week or two because the facts are really kind of finite. Um, He had the documents. They found them in his house. And, you know, you've got some obstruction evidence, you know, five, ten witnesses, case closed. Sure does seem like a curious decision to me as a non-practitioner for for. Jack Smith to have chosen to do it in Florida. I mean, he, he didn't have to. He could have done it in Washington. There's certainly plenty of reasons that could be the venue. Um, and, you know, that's not to speak of New Jersey or some other places that you might find documents. 
in retrospect, does it look like a mistake? Um, you know, I, I wonder to what extent they gamed out the odds of drawing Judge Cannon because, you know, she gave them fits before with this goofy ruling that, that we discussed in the search warrant. Uh, I, my guess is that they saw venue as appropriate in Florida. Um, I agree with you that venue would have been proper in D.C., I think, because that's where he took them from. Um, you know, his possession began there and then they, they were transported to Florida. I suppose the obstructive conduct occurred um, in Florida. Uh, usually if there's a conspiracy that has, um, you know, connection to any district, you may file it in th that district. Um, so I suppose there's some litigation risk of charging it on, you know, with a venue concern in Washington, DC, but I don't know the remedy the Supreme court decided just this past term is you get to just get a do over. You could file it again in Florida. So it might've been worthwhile. Let them file a motion to dismiss. You win. And then you, uh, you know, you continue in Florida, but, um, you know, that's where, that's where we are. So, uh, the judge Cannon, uh, you know, uh, judge Cannon is, is the judge for better or for worse. Yeah. For now, until, unless she does something really egregious. So let's, um, you know, for people who are at home listening, they go, okay, well, that's the four big cases, but there's actually a lot more. And, forces me to turn back the clock a little. Because another thing that's going to come up pretty quickly is the Colorado case, it seems to me. It seems like this is a case that where there's some urgency for the Supreme Court to deal with this case. And Trump seems to want it to go there. Uh, and we've heard in recent days uh, rumblings of other states that may consider doing the same thing, including, I believe, most recently, Maine. Um, uh, what's, what's your sense of where that stands? Oh, I think so. I think this is like the legal news story of the year. Um, it's a, it's a huge decision. Um, I'm not sure I saw it coming, but, um, the Supreme court of Colorado obviously has said that, that Donald Trump is disqualified from running as president or being the president in, at least in the state of Colorado. And I, you know, no doubt other states are going to follow suit. As you said, Maine, there's litigation pending in 12 uh, states right now. And so I think the Supreme Court just has to look at this. Um, you know, it's, it, it's really kind of an open question about how you interpret uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that talks about someone who first took an oath and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States may not um, be uh, hold a, a federal office if they are a U.S. officer. And so a couple questions there is, does the president qualify as a U.S. officer? And um, what does it mean to engage in insurrection? Uh, does you know, Trump's activities around January 6th qualify? So they found that the answer is yes in Colorado. So I think not only must the Supreme Court decide this question, I think they have to decide it quickly because um, all of these primaries are coming up. Colorado is a Super Tuesday state, which means their primary is on March 5th. They have to certify their ballot by January 5th. Now, the court stayed the decision until January 4th which means that if the Supreme Court picks this up, they could further delay all of those things and say there's a stay, you know, until we can do a briefing schedule, et cetera. But they can't wait too long because they still have to be able to print that ballot and get it out to all the precincts in Colorado. So I think we need a decision in this case by, you know, end of January, February sometime. So I think they're going to act and act very quickly. So one of the things that struck me in looking at the reaction to this particular case you know, on social media and, you know, on, on 
you know, cable news and so forth, is that there was almost a universal sense that the Supreme Court was going to reverse it, even though the the ruling seemed to be a very thoughtful, well-constructed ruling, even though in the ruling they anticipated it and they cited Justice Gorsuch, a prior ruling by Justice (laughs) Gorsuch, in which he said something very conservative sounding, which is leave it to the states, even though, you know, this majority is supposed to be states' rights people, and, and, and decisions like this are supposed to be left to the states. Um, do you share the view that they're likely to find a way to flip it, even if it doesn't make legal sense? No, I don't. Now, um, you know, this is a hard legal issue. Even in Colorado, the decision was four to three. So I think that um, it, it could go the other way. We'll have to see their analysis. But I don't think it is right to assume that just because Trump appointed many of them or others were appointed by other Republican presidents, that uh, they're going to come down on party line 6-3. I think this uh, court, the, the Roberts court is, at least its majority, devoutly conservative but I don't think they are devoutly MAGA. Um, and so I think they will analyze this case and make a decision. I think there are you know, a couple things worth noting. One is, you know, does it apply to officer of the United States? They'll go through a whole textual analysis, but how can he not be? The idea of this provision was to prevent former Confederate officers who are treasonous against the United States from occupying positions of power in our government. How can the president be excluded from that, right? Um, and the other was, um, whether he engaged in insurrection or rebellion, that might be a closer call, but they had a trial and they had findings. And so that seems appropriate. And then the other question is whether this mechanism is self-executing or there has to be some other kind of congressional action before it can, um, you know, enabling legislation before it can be executed. No other part of the constitution requires enabling legislation, right? The equal protection clause says people get the equal protection of the laws. It doesn't say, you know, only if a statute gets passed to enforce it. So, I think, you know, there's some pretty strong arguments in favor of this decision, and I don't see the justices throwing this out just so that Trump gets to stay on the ballot. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, it wouldn't affect the election so much because Colorado is a pretty blue state, but there are a bunch of states, including the one you're sitting in right now, that are a little purpler where it could be an issue, right? And, and, uh, uh, it sh- certainly b- bears watching. Now, of course, in addition to that, and that means there could be a couple of trials on that front. Um, you mentioned the Alvin Bragg case. A lot of people were miffed when he was the first one to step up. I personally wasn't because I thought this is a case about defrauding the public in the middle of an election. You know, I mean, what could be more fundamental um, than a, uh, somebody trying to lie, trying to hide the truth about himself, uh, fiddling with campaign finance laws, all in an effort to win an election illegally. Um, And it's the kind of thing Trump accuses everybody else of doing all the time. Um, What's your expectation on that one? Um, That one strikes me as a likely conviction of little consequence. And the reason I say that is, number one, why a conviction is likely. And that's because it's based on documents. You know, documents cases are usually very strong. You've got the checks, 
Um, although Michael Cohen is a witness in the case, I don't think he's the star witness people make him out to be. There are also some witnesses. Well, he was already from, convicted in the same case, right? Though, right, I right. Mean, which yeah. is a pretty powerful indicator of uh, of of his guilt and his testimony. Uh, I think is helpful. But they also have those guys from the National Enquirer. Um, who might be more persuasive witnesses. So I think that's a strong case. And as Alvin Bragg said at the time, look, I'm not singling out Donald Trump to refrain from prosecuting him would be to single him out. We prosecute these cases all the time. We are the financial capital of the world and integrity in financial transactions is critically important to uh, this community. That's why I'm prosecuting him. But I don't think uh, prison time is likely in this case. Um, it is a felony when it's used to conceal another crime. And Alvin Bragg says tax laws and election laws were concealed. Uh, so I see, you know, possible conviction and, you know, some sort of sentence of probation, maybe a fine. It is a conviction for a felony. So maybe it has some effect on voters who look to that and don't want a felon as a president. But it doesn't preclude him from running for or being elected as president. Um, you know, Not one of the constitutional requirements for election as president. So, um you know, relatively short trial, I think, you know, a few days, a week or so, maybe two. Um, conviction likely, consequences minimal. Uh, we've also got E. Jean Carroll with another trial coming up. Uh, she's already won one. Uh, yeah. I don't know whether she's actually received the money, although I think he had to put it in escrow someplace, so maybe she right. has. Um, I, I think he's put it up uh, in an appeal bond, so it's in escrow, so I don't think she's received it yet. Uh, but uh does seem pretty likely that she'll prevail again because the facts are pretty close to the facts the first time around, aren't they? Yeah. In fact, she's even asked the court for a um, a decision on the issue that it's already been found, uh, you know, sort of a race judicata thing that uh, uh, this decision's already been found by another jury. And the only thing we need to litigate here is the damages. I mean, remember, this comes where he just repeats the same things that he's already said about her. Um, you know, defamatory things about, you know, she's not my type. It's all a lie. She's making this up to sell books and uh, as part of the Democrat Party's, you know, strategy against me and all that sort of stuff. So um, I, I think that this is just uh, how much more is he going to have to pay her? Okay. So, you know, like, you know, let's just look at that. You know, we've gone 28, 29 minutes. We've gotten through four major cases, some minor cases, some cases of major constitutional import. But that's not going to be the whole story next year. And in our last five minutes, um, I'd like you to speculate a little bit about what might also come up. And let me prompt your speculation. Don't I don't want to lead the witness here. But, um, uh, for example, it's likely in the Fonnie Willis case and possibly in the Jack Smith case that some people will flip. And that's going to be big legal news because it'll change the complexion of the case. It's likely because, you know, um, in this wintertime it snows and, you know, when Donald Trump is around their lawsuits, that there will be new lawsuits. Um, whether, you know, I mean, these two women in Georgia have as much reason to sue Donald Trump as they do to sue Rudy Giuliani, who, as of the day of this uh, recording, declared bankruptcy, although... As I think you pointed out, that doesn't protect him against the decision in this particular case. What other kinds of things might we expect? Or, or you know, are you sort of thinking might be curveballs lurking on the legal horizon in 2024? 
Yeah, here's one curveball to look out for, and that is the Supreme Court's decision to accept uh, for review the conviction in a case called Fisher. This was one of the January 6th attackers who was convicted, uh, but he is one who raised this issue that the obstruction statute, uh, which is you know ob- obstruction of an official proceeding, is not valid for the attack on January 6th. The argument is because this was enacted by Congress after the Enron scandal, and because of the way it follows the words about alters, destroys, or mutilates a document, uh, otherwise the language is otherwise obstruct an official proceeding. It may be used only in the context of documents. Um, the district court said yes. The court of appeals said no. Um, and of course, it may be used to obstruct the certification on January 6th. The fact that the Supreme Court took this up suggests that it might think the D.C. Circuit got it wrong, right? If they agreed with the D.C. Circuit Court, there'd be no reason to take the case and review this language. Now, only four justices need to say yes, and you need five to uh, make make a decision in a case. So it may be just four justices are troubled by this. But the reason this matters is that Jack Smith also relies on this statute in his case against Donald Trump. Uh, there are two counts, a conspiracy and a substantive count, alleging that he obstructed an official proceeding under this same statute. Now, the Supreme Court will decide this case probably by June. And so maybe the delay under the immunity issue will take us to June as well. And Jack Smith will have his decision and he can decide how he wants to proceed. But if not, he likely has to make a decision. Should he go forward and take his chances and hope things come out his way? But that risks that there might be built-in reversal on appeal. Should he dismiss these two counts and just go to trial on the other two counts, but he might lose some evidence and he also loses the highest penalties, which these two uh, counts would bring. Or does he delay till June and try the case when he has full visibility into how the Supreme Court is going to decide this case? My guess is the immunity issue in this will converge in that way and he'll have the answer and clarity on it by the time the case goes to trial after the immunity issue is resolved in June. Um, yes, and of course, the other thing we can expect is that Donald Trump, having to testify, having to go to uh, court houses around the country for these cases, um, is going to be uh, unhinged, a loose cannon, <laughs> and say crazy things, yeah. um, which could get him in further trouble, presumably. Yeah, um, you know, think about the way he behaved in the New York uh, recent civil fraud case. Um, instead of being on the campaign trail and at rallies, all he's really going to have are statements from the courthouse steps. And so I think he's going to turn those into his rallies. He's going to use those opportunities. And, you know, the press is going to follow him because it's controversial and exciting. And he's going to say provocative things. Uh, I think he's going to use those opportunities to say all kinds of things. And even though he's got he's got a gag order in the federal election interference case, he's still got a lot of leeway. He can talk about the prosecutor. He can talk about the judge. He can talk about the Biden administration. He can talk about DOJ. So I think he'll be saying all kinds of wild things from the courthouse steps in 2024. Have I missed something? <laughs> no, I think you've got it all, but it's going to be a wild year. All that while an election is going on. So it's going to be quite a year. Yeah, we've never seen that. And that's why anybody who's out there who says, here's what's going to happen in 2024 is not shooting straight. They don't know. <laughs> we've never seen it. And we don't know what the impact of any one of these cases will be or new cases, 
or the conduct of the defendant or the conduct of other defendants in these cases. I mean, if somebody starts turning the screws on Mark Meadows because he stole a document full of raw intelligence about Russian involvement in the 2016 election, um, who knows what he'll say? Yeah, I, I agree. I think you're right that we'll have cooperators, just statistically speaking. People often, you know, wait until push comes to shove. They don't want to plead until their back's against the wall, but I think we'll see more guilty pleas. I also worry, David, that we might see some civil unrest. You know, already the justices in Colorado are receiving death threats. Uh, remember the jurors, the, the grand jurors in Georgia got all kinds of threats and harassment. So I, I worry that Trump's rhetoric will rile up violence and that we may see, you know, people injured as a result. Well, I uh, I am sure we will come back to you and turn to you, although I suspect you're going to have a very busy year because you've also got a book coming out on top of it, as if that were not enough. Um, but uh, the Sisters-in-Law podcast is great. You and your colleagues on that are each individually great and are collectively great, so people should listen to that. And, um, uh, and we hope we'll be able to coax you back here uh, because there's so much to follow up on. Until then, have happy holidays, have a happy new year, and uh, uh, the same to all of you out there. Bye-bye.